Welcome to episode 87 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to start our next um, series of episodes, which is going to be focused on a deep dive into children's publishing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, this is kind of Kelly in my wheelhouse, so we are sort of better able to articulate it, but we thought this overview would go into the publishing aspects of children's, as well as the sort of more um, intangible parts. So like, what is voice, what is considered middle grade versus young adult and all that sort of stuff. So we thought we decided we were going to do that series. But for today, we're kind of doing, I guess, a broad overview of the actual publishing of -hmm. children's fiction. Um, Because it is it is like the big divide. Like there in in publishing there is adult fiction and then there is children's fiction and there is very very little crossover because the sales departments are different. Mhm. Um Kelly, are you still there? You're kind of frozen. I'm still here. No, okay. am I frozen weird? I can hear you fine, but you are frozen. Okay. <laughs> we do we do this over Google Hangouts, y'all, so you can kind of sometimes hear like the the behind the scenes what. <laughs> <laughs> there you are again. Okay. Yay. So yes. Um so the the vast difference between children's and adult is basically kind of a matter of sales channel. Um so what is broadly the definition of children's fiction of children's publishing uh children's fiction if you want to call it that kelly children's fiction um super broadly anything from uh infants to age 18 yeah uh it's not this isn't to say that adults can't read uh, any of the categories but this is fiction and nonfiction, frankly aimed at non-adult readers Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, or a category. People. A category is essentially um, aimed at a target audience, and so mm-hmm. people outside of that target audience can and do read within, you know, and across categories. But the category is targeted toward a specific audience, and the marketing is geared toward that audience, you know, the, all the research, all the sales, the development of the work, the reading level of the work, the artwork, everything is, um, specifically, um, you know, published in such a way as to appeal most highly to that specific audience. So, you know, when we're talking about children's fiction, primarily our audience is, children, you know, we, each category has a different kind of age set. Um, and I know that plenty of adults read and love children's fiction. I certainly do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not the target audience for yes. those books. We can't, it, this is kind of something that I do like to stress to readers of children's fiction, that adult readers of children's fiction is not 
the target audience. And I say this as somebody who did write an older YA novel for her debut that was, in fact, was going to be published as an adult novel before it was moved to YA. Um, But a lot of people often, some of my readers do ask me about more adult things or they want more adult content. And the honest truth is, it just wasn't in the book because that's you guys are not my target audience. You are adults. The vast majority of the people I'm marketing and targeting are teenagers for the most part. Now, the the category of teenager can actually be a little bit flexible, which is why YA is such a broad category, uh, because a 13-year-old is considered a teenager, for example, but uh, the maturity level between a 13-year-old and an 18-year-old is pretty different. Um, And, you know, a lot of these these days you have a lot of older way, you know, where the protagonists are really kind of pushing what used to be a hard limit. 18 Mm -hmm. used to be a hard limit on the age of the protagonist. But I would say within the past five to 10 years, that's demonstrably not the case. My own heroine of my books was really in her late teens, early Mm twenties. Um, a lot of other novels are. So that hard line is no longer there. It, there were, used to be other arbitrary rules like you would if it was a contemporary you would try and set the book in uh-huh. high school and it was like a hard line. I actually do know of an <clears throat> author who is a who is a pretty popular YA author and they at her publisher one of her book series was actually set in college and her publisher basically forced her to rewrite it so it was set in high school um Mm -hmm. like a boarding school situation sometimes that can work sometimes that doesn't and i think in in her in her case it it was fine like just it was like a boarding school situation so you know you get a little bit more leeway there but um but again that that hard line doesn't quite exist and which is why and we'll talk about this in later episodes that upper YA crossover area gets very nebulous, but mm-hmm. yeah, broadly think, speaking, children. I think, yeah, one of, one of, I think the most challenging aspects of children's publishing in terms of the industry, the publishing, the actual making and production of the book, um, as opposed to adult publishing is that, you know, in adult publishing, um, adults are the people who are making all the choices along the way. You know, the the adults work in marketing, they work as editors, they work, you know, it's all adults. So when you're publishing books for adults and you have adults working on the books, you know, y- you are directly tapped into that target audience. Yes. Um, children's publishing has adults working in the industry um, on behalf of a targeted audience, which is children. We can't employ children. We don't have focus groups of eight-year-olds in the back room <laughs> at Penguin Random House, you know, reading aloud to them from our latest early reader to see if they dig it or not. Um, that doesn't really happen. And so there is a complicated and interesting part of children's publishing across all of its categories, wherein everyone working on the book is not a part 
of the target audience and has to make some decisions about what will best appeal to that audience, what should or should not be, um, you know, what, what about that audience should or should not be exposed to or when or how or in which ways, um, you know, and we're doing all of that work and all of that decision making a step removed from our target audience in a way mm-hmm. that adult publishing doesn't, you know, adult publishing still has to work with targeted audiences. You still need to find the, the niche audience for your book. You need to find that specific reader who's going to want this story. So there's still a lot of that work involved, but there is an extra layer to it in children's publishing because no matter how intimately we remember being children, we are not children now. And the Mm -hmm. experience of that children who are children now are having in this present moment is different than our experience as children 15, 20 years ago. And so there is this necessary gap that you have to do your best to close in children's publishing. Yeah. There are other aspects of children's publishing that don't exist to the same extent in adult publishing, namely the school markets, Mm -hmm. uh, school and library. I mean, library associations are, you know, fairly influential in adult publishing as well, but it is a little bit different when you are talking about schools and libraries for young people. Teachers have a lot of influence here. Um, and, you know, and this is kind of an, an often a, a sort of side hustle, as I like to call it, is a lot of authors do often go make school visits um, when they write for children. The flip side of it is is that a lot of adults actually give paid speaking engagements um, for generally, for the most part, this is. A, like nonfiction, if you're a nonfiction writer, then um, often, like, I remember when I worked in publishing, if we had a particularly compelling nonfiction author who was a really great public speaker, we would match them with our speakers bureau um, and a speaking agent. And that it's exactly what it sounds like, who is an agent for you booking speaking gigs. Um, and that's mostly for adult nonfiction YA authors and middle grade authors don't tend to go on that sort of speaking engagement, but on the other hand, they do do a lot of presentations at schools. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, middle grade, for the most part, does school presentations uh, because middle grade. So let's actually talk about the age ranges for the kind of categories of children's fiction. So we have very, very Begin. We have picture books, basically, or paper yeah. Even before board. that, you've got board book. Yeah, yeah, paper over so, board. Yeah, so you've got board books, then picture books, and then early readers, mm-hmm. um, chapter books, and then lower middle grade, upper middle grade, lower YA, upper YA, new adult ish. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the There are no hard borders for all of these. Mm-hmm. I think maybe when you go a little bit younger, you know, board books and picture books. But even, I mean, picture books spans a very, very large category and age ranges out well. But board books, if you think about it, they're the real, they're the ones that are printed on really, really. Board. It's thick, like cardboard. Yeah, cardboard. 
They're very simple. They're kind of yeah, blocky. One or two uh, words per page. A lot of times often, you'll take like yeah. a popular picture book and they'll simplify it for a board book version. Um, it's essentially like something shapes. the baby's going to chew yeah. on. <laughs> You're going to yeah. point to the ball and say ball. Point exactly. to the chair and say chair. Um, this it's is not, a color. Yeah. Yeah. Those it's are not a books. story usually. There are some exceptions, but for the most part, they're pseudo educational tools as opposed to stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and picture books is where you really start to get into creative fiction in terms of children's fiction categories. Yeah. Picture books. I would say the age range for picture books can really, it depends on the child, obviously. Um, but probably I would say three or four kind of really all the way up to be honest. Um, yeah, I think, you know, you can have, picture book readers who enjoy reading picture books and they can get more complex too. It's not that a picture book is, is a very set thing on the younger end. You, you know, you kind of aiming at, we'll say a three to six year old age range. Mm -hmm. That might be a little bit white even. So it's like a three or three to five and you've got kind of the sing songy, almost rhyme has, you know, the very rhythmic rhythmic. There's a story, but it's not super complicated. It's often more of a scenario like so-and-so cleans up a room or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's, and these are obviously designed to be read aloud and all picture books are actually, in my opinion, designed to be read aloud. Yeah. I think that's a hallmark of the category because primarily the audience the majority of children those ages will not be able to read to themselves. Certainly mm-hmm. at the upper end of the age range, yes, they will. There'll be a few, you know, outliers who are able to read younger. But mm-hmm. in general, picture books are meant for an adult to read to a child. Um, and so that quality of the um, – Oral, not oral, but aural <laughs> yeah. part, part of the book, the way the book actually sounds when spoken aloud is really crucial in picture books in a way that it isn't as crucial in other categories, although JJ and I are very fond of telling you all to read aloud because it does mm-hmm. make a difference. Um, but certainly picture books are intended to be read aloud. That's their primary uh, method of consumption. Most people are going to hear them. And so they need to have that in their prose. Yes. And so kind of on the upper end of, of picture books, I would say you could probably target picture books all the way up to, I would say maybe six or seven. You could probably have kids sort of reading and enjoying picture books at that age. And kind of around seven or eight, I would assume six, seven, eight is sort of when you transition into early reader books. Yes. Um, Kelly, you want to define what that is? Sure. Early reader books are those books that are meant, you know, when a child begins to learn to read on their own these are kind of the first books that they will read independently. The language is really simplistic, short, simple words, a lot of repetitive sounds, mat, bat, cat, 
things like that. It's usually divided into quote-unquote chapters. Um, each chapter is maybe like three sentences long, four sentences long. They usually are heavily illustrated still. Um, and they're meant to be um, the stepping stone for children to feel as though they are reading independently. They can read a whole book themselves start to finish without too much assistance from an adult. Um, and it's that first kind of step up um, in both their confidence and their abilities. Uh, and the stories are usually pretty simplistic. There's a lot of series in this category, um, you know, characters that um, children will be familiar with and and can get to know over the course of a time. You know, I remember like when I was growing up, there was like Angelina Ballerina, there were Pee Wee Scouts, there were like all these yeah, books were, in that category. I would also consider books like, I don't remember if you remember this book series or, or another, but there was one called PJ Funny Bunny. Mm. There was a series of books wherein he's just a, a bunny in a bunch with a big bunny family. Um, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily call, I don't know, I guess, would you call Are You My Mother? Do you remember this book? Are You My I Mother? I do remember Are You My Mother. I would call that a picture book still. It's it's definitely on that higher end. It's, yeah, it's on the higher end. It's, um, but, you know, and again, you, you, you start to see this, like the very, very, very young board books are basically mm -hmm. pretty much concepts. That's it. It's just concepts right. paired with a word. Um, right. that you are showing to a very, very young child, generally mm -hmm. at probably not even, not even quite a toddler yet. There's, they're pretty yeah. young. They're just learning to sit up and, and like explore their, their world. These are books. That's what paper over board are. And then picture books are, they get a little bit more complex. They're no longer mm -hmm. concepts. They're now scenarios for mm -hmm. the lack of a better word. They're, they're scenarios, and so children can pull together concept, pull concepts together and build them into something a little bit more complicated. And then you have kind of the upper end of picture books where it is a very simple story. It's, yeah, it introduces you know, a narrative. It introduces a narrative that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, but it's a pretty simple conflict and it's just one, you know, so it's it's kind of very simple trajectory. And so, yeah. again, the older we get, the more complex the narrative mm -hmm. and consequently the writing gets in each age mm -hmm. group. So yeah. for an early reader, again, it would be a little bit more complex. You have a little bit more of a complete story. You would have more mm -hmm. words, you know. Yeah. Also, the physical format of the books is very different in each mm -hmm. category as well, which also um, pretty much can clue you in, too, about their purpose and who's expected to be reading them. We talked about board books a lot. They're pretty indestructible. You can't tear them. Um, you know, you can chew on them. You can usually wipe them right off if you spill something on them. Yep. Um, and that's because babies are messy and careless and, you know, little destruction machines. So board books are made to be pretty indestructible. Uh, picture books are almost always initially published in hardcover. Um, yes. They will sometimes get a paperback release later, depending on the popularity of the book, but most 
picture books are always released in hardcover. Again, that's because grown-ups are going to be reading them. You're going to be holding them. They're usually big. I don't know the exact trim size off the top of my head, and it can vary, too, it's, depending it on the like, illustrations. Yeah, it sometimes a little bit more kind of landscape. Mm-hmm. I would probably say they maybe 10... Sometimes they're square as well. Can yep. I would say they kind of minimum, if I was going to hold it in front of me, probably I'd say like 10 inches. Yeah. They're larger, again, because they're illustrated and the illustrations are going to do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of mm-hmm. conveying that story. Um, so they're hardback. They're large. Um, when you start to get into early readers, the trim size shrinks way down and they're always almost always soft cover. Um, yes. They're, you know, slim, little, small trim size, soft cover. They're not released in hardback almost ever. Um, if you've got a great fancy series that, you know, has a collector's edition, they might be hard covers of them. But, you know, yeah. nine times out of ten, they're going to be soft cover. So the format is also really different um, across these early categories, shifting categories as well. And that also makes sense. If you think about it, this is a book that a kid is going to, you know, shove in their backpack. They're going to asleep at night, you know, reading the mm-hmm. pages, like it makes sense that it would be a more flexible, softer cover for those types of books. So we have early reader, which it is a little bit hard of a category to describe to people who are not that familiar with children's books. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say a lot of my queries I get, people are calling themselves middle grade and what they're actually sending me is an early reader. Right. A lot of people don't understand these categories, so hopefully we'll be able to help you with that over the course of this series. Yeah, Early Reader still has somewhat of an educational, not really like educational, educational bent to it, but there's still what some aspect, for example, the one that I'm thinking of right now is the Amelia Bedelia series, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if you guys have read those. And this is... um, Oh gosh, I can't remember. She was a nanny, <laughs> some sort of domestic yeah, servant. They've, they've rebooted them, so there's a new "quote unquote" Amelia Bedelia where she's a little girl now, um, doing a similar wordplay. You know, yeah. There's a, a lot of wordplay that, and those the I, what I recall of the Amelia Bedelia books, which I loved as a child. They I were really, great. I like. I've like read them all is essentially they introduce colloquialisms, English, uh, mm-hmm. like English colloquialisms. And by that, I mean, you know, when you butter your bread or, you know, those sorts of metaphorical colloquialisms that Amelia takes very literally. But right. over the course of the book, the children come to understand what it means metaphorically. So mm-hmm. this is what I mean by there's still a slight educational aspect to early reader that still has a narrative and a conflict in the story. Usually Amelia has to solve a problem of some kind and she does it in her own inimitable way because she takes everything so literally. Um, So there's like, again, there's a story there. It's a little bit more complex, but there's still something that is being, that the child is passively learning because Uh that's the other thing about children's books that I think a lot of people sort of get get incorrect is that they're like, well, this is the lesson I mean to impart to children. 
And the, I mean, you guys remember being kids, the last thing you wanted to be was lectured to. Nobody likes to be lectured to. And so when you are trying to impart or teach lessons to children, it's best to do so by actually doing, which is what I think is the brilliant part about the Amelia Bedelia books. It's not that they're like, here's a thing and this means that. Amelia demonstrates for, at first incorrectly, but then correctly, the meaning of these colloquialisms. And so this is what I mean by children are learning passively rather than having something like just given mm-hmm. to them. Um, so that's early reader. Then what would you consider chapter books? Chapter books, I think, are the next logical step up from that where they're more sophisticated prose. They are um, definitely telling a complete narrative. There's something that children can read alone on their own, but they're also this sweet spot for these read aloud classics that people have come to know, like the quintessential um, chapter book that I think of, and maybe it's just because we're literally reading it aloud right now with my five-year-old, is Charlotte's Web. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a short book. It's not long. It's really simple, but it has you know, one main narrative story broken up into several cohesive chapters that have their own miniature narrative within each chapter. Um, and, you know, the prose is more advanced and more, um, you know, much larger vocabulary. But it is a story um, that children can read on their own, you know, and often do. Um so it's more sophisticated than an early reader. These are for children who aren't learning to read anymore. Early readers are for children who are learning to read or learning to process language and and all of that. Chapter books are for children who know how to read and are reading their first books, you know, their first first foray into consuming fiction on their own. And that's kind of what chapter books are. Yeah, these are often series as well. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of early Judy Bloom books, like Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing, Beverly Cleary yes. books. Yes, all the Ramona books. Ch- yeah. yeah, I love Ramona Quimby. So um, good. I would um, say early Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys could possibly fall yeah, under chapter like, books. Back then, you know, those were the books that, like, that was all children's fiction because (laughs) children's fiction was all just one big thing back then um, and didn't have the nuance that it has these days. I would say yes to those. I would say things like, um, like, uh, more recently, Tales of Despero by Kate DiCamillo is a great one. Um, reaching back into books that I read as a kid, you know, like you've got like the Moffats or like Five Children and It, and like all these bizarre, strange things. Yeah, um, they're the Mouse and the Motorcycle. I remember the Mouse and the Motorcycle. That's Beverly Cleary too, I think. Beverly um, Cleary did write a lot yeah, of chapter books. Ribsy, Ribsy's a great book for that age. Um, you know, yeah, they're they're often series or, you know, familiar characters. I think, you know, a lot of Beverly Cleary's books have the same kind of characters coming in and out in a way that's really great. Um, For those of you who were um, Babysitter's Club fans, Babysitter's Club is not 
a chapter book in the strictest sense, but they did do a spinoff series for Christie's little sister, Karen, and it was called babysitter's little sister. And I literally the only babysitter's club book I ever read was a little, little sister book, little sister (laughs) book, but those are chapter books. (laughs) Um, like a series of chapter books, goosebumps, totally goosebumps. Um, yeah, all those first books, you know, that you first read as a kid, um, you know, on your own when you could read a whole book by yourself and were, you know, had your reading legs, knew how to read and, and were getting your first stories. Um, and so that's what I think the difference between chapter books and early readers are. Again, it's a subtle difference. I actually think the difference between early readers and chapter books is more distinct than the difference between chapter books and lower middle grade. I would agree. I think that line starts to get really blurred. I also think, and maybe that's just because I read a lot as a child and, you know, it's interesting because I find maybe the reason that I love children's books so much is because I was very young when reading was very formative for me. So I remember, and I remember them visually, like early reader books were very, very slim. Mm-hmm. Whereas chapter books were a little thicker. Like it, mm-hmm. it kind of, it almost is that simple. But I do agree, there's a big difference between early yeah. reader and chapter books. Yeah, like Super Fudge, the chapter books. I what was it? Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing, Freckle Juice. All Freckle these ones juice, from my childhood yeah. just came slamming back into my mind. I can see their covers. Uh, right, the Chocolate Touch. Um, that, yep, which was a clever take on the Midas Touch. Midas Touch, yep. Yeah, so yeah, I think, you know, chapter books are firmly about narrative, firmly about fiction. Moving into that lower middle grade space, I do think there is a difference, but I don't know that I will be able to articulate it well here. I think that, so I think by the time we get into chapter books, chapter books are chapter books like one like we move when we move beyond early reader chapter books and onward exist to tell a story and no longer to impart a lesson of some kind they really only exist to tell stories and to entertain not that you can't have educational parts in these books etc etc but the point of a chapter book, at least it was for me, I didn't read chapter books because they were good for me. I enjoy, I mean, I always read because I enjoyed it. But I liked, read, when I started to read on my own, I read a lot of chapter books because they were stories and I was entertained. That's kind of the reason. I think when we get in, so and the other thing too, so early reader, I would still say you would target that towards I don't know, four, five, six. Yeah, early reader. I think you go four, five, six, and then chapter, chapter books, books is like seven, like six, and up. yeah, six, six seven, to six eight. And up, yeah. Because yeah. um, I remember the very first chapter book I read, quote, on my own. This was a mm. big deal for me. Um, it was probably in the first grade, and it was a book called "The Day Chubby Became Charles," mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know if anyone has ever heard of this book or even if it's still in print it was translated from the german Uh, um anyway but i remember that distinctly and what a sense of accomplishment it was for me when i was like six 
because, yeah, I was in first grade, so I was six years old. Um, and then beyond, I was in a lot of the protagonists of chapter books, I would say, are probably around that age as well. I would say like seven or eight. Children tend to read up, as we say. Mm -hmm. They often read about characters who are older than they are. And this is a way, I think, as well, that children passively learn when older kids are doing things that they can't do yet, but they kind of learn passively by how the protagonists are acting. So often, even though the character in a book might be 10, it's really geared toward like an eight-year-old because that's kind of the way children function. Um, and I would say the protagonists of a lot of ch chapter books are around eight that's kind of my prevailing memory. Like, even, like, Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. They're in the fourth yeah. grade. Um, Beverly... Ramona, I think, was seven or eight in those... In the Ramona Quimby Yeah, well, books. there's Ramona Quimby, age eight. I think in Beezus and Ramona, Ramona's five and Beezus is nine or something like that. They kind of grow up over the series a little bit. Um, but, yeah, they're all in that age. Kind of younger elementary school age. And then lower YA, lower middle grade rather, I the I think the lines are blurrier here only because once you get to chapter books and chapter books are just exist to tell you a good story, mm -hmm. that's really the function of all children's fiction from this point onward. Right. Um... The language think, can get a little bit more complicated. Yeah, I think the plots become a little more intricate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but the the it's really slight. I think it's more to do with feel than most else. And I think genre. I think a lot of chapter books are contemporary. Um, not exclusively so, but like a lot of the ones, and again, like I don't do early readers as an agent. I don't represent early readers and I don't represent, um, chapter books. So I'm, I don't do as much market research for that. And so I might be out of touch with what's going on in the market right now. Uh, drawing specifically from my own childhood, which was a long time ago, most of the books that I can think of were contemporary. The Ramona books, you know, mm -hmm. are about real life, real people, freckle juice, you know, all that stuff. Um, you've got the goosebumps that are not, that are genre and, you know, things like the chocolate touch or, or other books like that. But when I think of, um, like fantasy books, I start to, to move more into the middle, to grade, middle grade space. I think... It's funny that we say Ramona is contemporary because I think these are technically set in like the sixties, maybe. Well, yeah, now they're historical, but like when they were written, they were they were written as contemporary um, fiction, weren't they? Because they were written back in the sixties, weren't they? I don't quite remember. I think they might have been written in. I don't actually know how how old they were, and I think a lot of them were kind of drawn on Beverly Cleary's own experience. Own there childhood. Certain, yeah, there's certain, so it's almost like, so they were, like, set in the 60s, but, like, based on her memories from, like, growing up in, like, the 30s or something, so it's, like, yeah. kind of several layers removed there. Um, I would say the reason, or rather realistic, well, maybe instead of contemporary, we'll say it's realistic. Realistic. Fiction. There you go. So there's not a lot of there's not a lot of magical elements. If they are, they're incredibly slight. 
Um, or they're, you know, very simple and kind of like a, like a fairy appears, like a tooth fairy appears or something there. It's like very, very simple in that way, but not like a secondary world fantasy, which is what I tend right. to think of, uh, right. when I think of fantasy middle grade. And I think the real reason for that, honestly, in my opinion, is that again, it has to do with complexity that. You know, when you have realistic fiction, these are a lot of touchstones that children have. So it, the descriptions, the prose, and the setting up of scenarios isn't that complicated. It's fairly straightforward. But when you get to a fantasy setting or science fiction setting, um, there's a little bit more context, ex- explanation, and frankly, room for imagination that a child has to have which is why I think you start to see more genre the older a child gets. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not to say that genre doesn't exist in chapter books, because like we said, Goosebumps, uh, which are horror light, <laughs> and uh, basically the first 100 Goosebumps books are all Twilight Zone episodes. <laughs> um, they are like, okay, I will, so I'll, I'll confess something about my own childhood. I was not allowed to read anything my mother considered mass-produced um, or commercial. My mother thought that, I, I don't know, that I should be aiming for loftier books. Um, so she did not allow me to read The Babysitter's Club, um, and she did not allow me to read Goosebumps. And in Goosebumps' case, it wasn't because it was mass-produced, but it was because they were Satan novels. Uh, <laughs> my mother is a pretty strict Methodist. Um, so I listened to her and I didn't bother to read pretty much any of the Babysitter's Club books. Also, frankly, they didn't interest me at that age. I did sneak home every single Goosebumps book, the first 100, and I read them all and I would hide them in between like my mattress and the box springs so my mother wouldn't find them. Um, this is like quintessential baby JJ. I see <laughs> I it. I believe it. <laughs> and, um, so I, I read like the first hundred and I loved them. And I think it's like every new year's or something like that. Some holiday, some channel has like a twilight zone marathon. Um, and I remember one year, uh, Mark and I were just in his parents' shore house and it was like a rainy day, so we couldn't do any outdoor activities and it just happened to coincide with one of these marathons. And I remember watching them and being like, wait, this was a Goosebumps book. This was a Goosebumps book. And that one was too. And then I realized, oh my God, Bob Stein took the first 100 all from the Twilight Zone. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... Goosebumps is an example of genre chapter book. Encyclopedia Brown? Yes! Uh, Donald Sobel, he, these are very, very simple mysteries for children to solve. But again, mm-hmm. mystery is a genre. Um, even though, even if there's no magic necessarily, it's still genre. The same way yeah, horror totally. is. Um, but yeah, once we get into science fiction and fantasy is when we start to move into what I would consider lower lower middle grade. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so then let's talk about middle grade. Middle grade is pretty broad. I would say middle grade spans anywhere from 8 to 14. 
mm-hmm. readership wise. Um, so what would you say categorizes middle grade broadly? Oh, um, if I had to distill it down to a, to, you know, just a few qualities, um, I think they are primarily stories about, uh, family and friendship and finding your place within your community. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of the the hallmark of a middle grade story. Yeah. I would say finding the your place in the community is pretty I wouldn't say universal, but I do I do think that's a fairly unifying theme that goes across the category. Um because when I think of my favorite middle grade novels, they tend to be that. They tend to be finding community or becoming part of a community or understanding your place in a community. Um, and there's a there's also an element of first steps toward self-actualization. <laughs> if, mm. It sounds kind of weird. Um but often middle grade protagonists start to do things without parents. They are starting to make independent decisions. They are discovering who they are outside of their family unit, but also being reaffirmed by their community mm-hmm. is kind of the way I tend to think about it. Um, assuming some responsibility, I think. Yeah, assuming some responsibility. Um, also at this point, too. You know, a chapter book is still, you know, this is an independent reader and the reader is now, and the child is now reading independently for the most part. Um, But even in chapter books, I would say that the language is, I I don't like to use the word simplistic necessarily because, um, but the language is, I would say, probably pretty spare, stripped down, um, utilitarian, to be honest, is probably the best way I would be able to describe it, is very utilitarian. Middle grade is, I think, where you can start to really focus on the writing craft. Yeah. Is kind of also where I think kind of the dividing line between chapter books and middle grade are. Because, mm-hmm. you know, all these, story, all these books are still concerned with telling a good story, but middle grade is when you have a reader who is comfortable enough in reading to start to be able to read more complicated prose mm-hmm. and more and more complexly complexly crafted novels. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, obvious. So then, what is what would you say the difference between older and younger middle grade? I think again, it's it's so difficult, right? Because I feel like if you put it in front of me, I I know it when I see it and it's hard to articulate it because I think so much of it is kind of nebulous. It is a feeling. It is an Mm -hmm. overall sense of the work. You know, if I was to think of an example of a lower middle grade novel, um, you know, one of the first one that comes to mind and also 
I want to clarify this at the start. We say lower and we mean lower in the age category. We don't mean like lesser in any way. <laughs> it's not like this is, you know, subpar middle grade and upper middle grade is like the, you know, the, ooh, the good stuff. Um, it's strictly about the lower or upper ends of the age categories. And that's it. Um, when I think of a lower middle grade book, the first one that sticks in my mind right now, probably because I'm picturing my own bookshelves out in the other room, um, is um, the first few books in um, the series of Unfortunate Events. Uh, mm -hmm. Book one is The Bad Beginning. Um, and, you know, again, those books are really complex in terms of the language and the themes explored and the, you know, the content and stuff can get kind of dark later on. And even at the beginning, you know, a classic trope, all the parents are dead and the kids are off on their own. You know, that's like a middle, middle grade classic. Um, but I think of those first few books as lower middle grade, just because they seem intended for a younger audience, even that double layer of humor, because one of the things that those books do so beautifully is the humor works on multiple levels and yes. older readers can get um, new things out of the jokes, but the jokes still work for younger readers. And I feel like those initial jokes, the wordplay um, is accessible for that younger age group in those first couple of books. So that that those kids can read those books and get a lot out of them and enjoy them. And, um, so I think of those as a lower middle grade. Um, you know, I think it, I think it really is something that you just look at and, and you just have to look at the whole picture and say like, who ultimately is this book for what readers are going to, get the most out of this. Not that older kids can't read it or younger kids can't read it, but like that target sweet spot between like lower, lower middle grade, I'd say the age range is like eight to 11. Yeah, I would say eight to 11. I, because I guess like if I, and I actually think about the books that were assigned to me at that age as mm. being fairly good indicators. So, Maniac McGee. Oh, such a good book. I love that book. Um, the Witch of Blackbird Pond. Oh, uh, yeah. What else did I... I'm, I'm trying to kind of... The Giver was assigned to me when I was the in fourth grade. It's a classic, yep. Yeah. Um, third or fourth grade, I think. Uh, a lot of... Uh, like old Lawrence Yep books, I tend to think like Dragon Wings. Mm -hmm. um, so like kind of the books that you sort of see kind of assigned to like third and fourth graders yeah. tend to be that age range. Lois Lowry is a good is a good one. I remember yeah, reading Number, like the, Number Stars. the Stars. Yep. Catherine Patterson, um, Bridge to Terabithia. Mm -hmm. This oh, is lower yeah. middle grade. Um, yep. Some of her other books which is a book that I love that is definitely not lower middle grade at all. It's called Jacob Have I Loved. Um, oh, I, God. That I would call that like upper YA, actually, to be frank. Um, yeah. Or um, Madeline Langle would also, I would consider kind of um, some of her books I would consider. Yeah, I, I read, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I remember right. reading at that age. Right. 
Um, um, so that's kind of what I think of when I think of like lower middle grade. Um, Lloyd Alexander. I love Lloyd Alexander. He's kind mm-hmm. of my my hero in that regard. Roll Doll, I think. Matilda. Roll Doll. And... Yep, the witches. Yeah. Um, the BFG. The BFG. So these are like younger middle grade. They still have a great read a bit like read out loud factor. I mean, to be frank, I think most, if not all, children's books do. do. Um, And some of them are still illustrated. Not all middle grade books are illustrated, but a lot of them are. They are, and but the the frequency of illustrations is reduced. So, yeah, it starts to diminish. Yeah, the older that you get, so you know you've got picture books a lot, really illustration heavy. Early readers really illustration heavy, usually an illustration on every page. Um, chapter books, there'll be a few illustrations dispersed throughout the chapter, and then middle grade. Most often, you'll have um, like illustrations as chapter headings, and then if there is something really really crucial within the plot that you need to see visually. There'll sometimes be an illustration there, but the illustrations tend to become uh, more and more sparse as you get up into the older categories. So then let's talk about upper middle grade, mm-hmm. um, which we would say probably anywhere from 10 to 14, 14. Yeah. Um, Obviously, the Percy Jackson books I would consider yep. upper middle grade. They're pretty complex. They mm. are um, rather large and compl- complicated in scope, um, but crucially, and, and a lot. Of, and by the time you get to upper middle grade, too, I would say the other element that does come into play is romance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of for me. That's actually the difference between lower middle grade and upper middle grade. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, romance is actually a pretty big part of it. Um, so I'd say like Percy Jackson, it doesn't always have to be. I would consider Brian Jake's Redwall books also mm-hmm. upper middle grade. Um, yeah, the first three Harry Potters are mm-hmm. upper middle grade. Upper middle grade. Um, Arusha, Rasha's book is upper, is upper, is upper middle, middle grade. grade. Um, so at this point, really what distinguishes upper middle grade from lower YA. Hmm. I do think there is a, a more clear delineation between upper middle grade and lower YA than there is, um, between, you know, lower and upper middle grade. And I think, you know, the main distinction, again, like we talk about thematically, like finding your place in your community is kind of, um, the big thing for middle grade books. And, uh, in young adult, um, really it is about, um, claiming your own identity is kind Mm -hmm. of the thematic thing that kind of ties all of young adults, uh, together, generally exceptions. Sure. Um, lower YA is hard because I feel like it used to be really strong and then it kind of vanished for a little while. And I know that people kind of want to bring it back. It's a really valuable category. I think YA has gone so dark 
and so um, Adult, sprawling yeah. in this way that there is kind of a little bit of a gap for readers who want to read more sophisticated things than, you know, their upper middle grade that they've kind of moved on from. And there's a little bit of a, a hole in the market there. Um, the younger, lower middle grade YA series that I just love is the Georgia Nicholson series. Yeah. I just love those books. There's like There's 10 of so, them. They're so They're good. British. They're by the late, great Louise Renison. I honestly, I laugh out loud when I read these books. They are delightful. And the protagonist, Georgia Nicholson, is I think 14, 14 at the beginning of the, beginning. the book. And, you know, she's got her friends and she's got this crush and like it's dealing with more sophisticated stuff, but she's 14, you know, like they, they talk about like sex in the book and they've got like the snogging scale of like everything <laughs> from like kissing <laughs> to the so full good. Monty, um, so you know, and, and all the things in between. Um, and the list gets like edited as the series goes on <laughs> and they add in little half steps and things like that. Um, so there's always like that frank discussion of sex, but predominantly the characters themselves are not having sex and they're not ready to have sex. Um, and they talk about that, you know, she's kind of like, I'm cool with making out, but like, uh. um, and you know, sex aside, it's just a younger, there's still a lot of silliness to it. And like being with your friends and being a complete moron and like, you know, going shopping for lipstick and like laughing your head off on the bus. Like, you know, like there's just these moments of, um, what it, what it's like to be at that age where you want to be more sophisticated, um, but you're not quite <laughs> as sophisticated yeah. as you hope to be. Like the whole opening of the first book is like, she's going to a costume party and she's like, I'm going to go as a stuffed olive and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> and she like paints her face red and she wears like red tights. And then she makes like a paper mache olive <laughs> and, and it's huge and she can't fit in the car. So her dad is like driving really slowly down the street and she's like walking alongside the car and it's hilarious. And she like feels so good about her costume and it's so funny and then she gets to the party and all the girls are like cats or like yep. angels. Like a cute, it's a like... cute costume or like, uh, it's so, what I love about the Georgia Nicholson books is that even though my own school experience was not really like this, first of all, I was not as cool as Georgia. Um, none of us were. None of us were. Georgia's actually really cool. But it's, the feelings are incredibly realistic to a younger teenager. Um, I think, and those are contemporaries. So it's a little bit easier sometimes to point to contemporary or rather quote, realistic fiction based mm. books when I was young. Cause I actually didn't read Georgia Nicholson until I was an adult. Um, cause I was an Kelly, adult too. Yeah. Kelly made me read them and I was like, Oh my God, how did I miss these when I was an actual teenager? Cause these are genius. Um, the ones that I read that I would consider younger YA were like the face on the milk carton. Mm. Um, oh God. I know. 
Let, let's talk about trashy soap opera at its oh, finest. It, it, it was all, I feel like we had all that trashy stuff when yeah, I was a Yeah, the kid, Sweet though. Valley High books, which another series my mother did not let me read, and I honestly never bothered to read those, but uh, like the Sweet Valley High books were definitely ostensibly teenagers. They were teenagers and mm-hmm. had specific teen concerns. Um, when you have, you know, you were really have your first bit of independence from your parents and you're coming to terms with your body in a way that you don't really yet in middle grade or it's not really talked about necessarily to the same degree. Uh-huh. Um, so that's kind of what I think of when I think of younger middle grade that I read when I was that age. When it comes to genre, it's harder because I would say something like Garth Nix's Sabriel, I would consider mm. that lower YA. Um, a lot of Tamara Pierce's books I would consider lower YA. Yeah. Um, not all of them, but I, I would certainly no. say like the Alana books I would consider younger YA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Immortals Quartet I would consider younger YA. Um, and I also say that because like, so when I was growing up, children's fiction, my local bookstore was Romans and children's fiction was all on the second floor and children's fiction was not nearly as big as it is today when I was growing up. Um, so everything was kind of just shelved under children's fiction. And then we had one bookcase that said Mm -hmm. young adult. Mm-hmm. And the only authors that were there were Garth Nix, Tamara Pierce, and the Sweet Valley High books. Yeah. Um, and beyond that, there wasn't, at least not that I can recall, Upper YA when I was growing up. No, there was, no. It was all just kind of the same thing, you know. Um, Forever by Judy Bloom was mm-hmm. like... You know, I would what also there was. nowadays consider that younger YA. To be honest, and I would definitely say this, YA as we know it is defined by Twilight. There is a before Twilight, and then there is an after Twilight. Yeah, I would agree. Twilight is a genre and categorizing-defying phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And at that point... And it's hard to articulate unless you really read a lot of YA novels kind of before and around the time of Twilight. Mm-hmm. Um, when did that first book come out? It must have been early 2000s, right? It's got to be. It's. It was like... Yeah, it had to be. It had to be. Um, because... Let me look it up right now. I did, by the way, I know we're past it, but I did look up Beverly Cleary and uh, Beezus and Ramona was published in 1955. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So let me see when Twilight was published. Uh, 2005. So later than I expected, but still, that does make sense. I graduated high school in 2000. And so um, that makes sense to me. That would have been right when I was out of college um, that Twilight published. Because I think the thing is, too, is that that the Harry Potter series, which preceded Twilight, um, although it wasn't finished by the time Twilight published, um, it was firmly published as children's fiction. The books, 
like as children's fiction meaning middle grade. The books got more sophisticated as they went, and we would now categorize them as YA, those last three books. I would say like the last, I would say from Goblet of Fire onward, I would categorize them as YA. As YA. But at the time, it was very, I mean, it's scholastic. It was very like, this is a middle grade series. And the series itself just became such a phenomenon that we made exceptions is what Harry Potter was. They made exceptions for the length of the book. They made exceptions for the um, complications because the audience was literally growing up with the books as they went. And it made you know, commercial sense. It wasn't the kind of book where you're going to have Harry be the same age every, you know, mm-hmm. book in the series. But that was really an exception. I I do agree that Twilight, much more so than YA, was the lightning rod at which that genre really became something firmly established. Firmly established with its own conventions and mm-hmm. tropes. And I don't mean tropes or in a cliche kind of a way, but Twilight really firmly established the strong romantic elements in most YA these days. Mm-hmm. The other thing Twilight established was the emotional claustrophobia you experience reading this category. Mm-hmm. There is, and we'll talk about this in a later episode, perhaps we kind of get to the difference between, we'll say, like, a YA novel and an adult novel. There are, you know, adult novels that are set in high school, but they're definitely not YA novels. No, no. Has... But there is one of the defining hallmarks of Twilight was the emotional closeness you had to Bella. And it is, it feels almost claustrophobic. Granted, it is also written in the first person, but that emotional immediacy can be in third person as well. And that's really my opinion. Because when you read Harry Harry Potter, there is a distance between the narrator yeah. and the reader. Um, a lot of middle grade has some distance not that there isn't emotional closeness and not that you aren't experiencing the emotion that the characters have but Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a distance there but Mm -hmm. that distance is completely gone in YA and I honestly think that Twilight is the the reason why I am I'm certain that they exist I cannot think off the top of my head of a middle grade uh written in the first person can you think of one I know they are I know they exist is Percy Jackson first person? I've never read Percy Jackson, so I don't know. I've only read a couple. I think actually Percy Jackson is first person. Because um, R is in third. Um, yeah, most are in third. In a way that I think makes a lot of sense. Oh, the only middle grade that I can think of that's not, but that's because it's a diary form, is Catherine called Birdie. Another book that oh, made me laugh yeah. out loud when I was a kid. <laughs> um, a lot of the times when middle grade is in the first person, it is that. It's a, it's a diary form. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily that the narrative is told in first person. Um, but yeah, I think for me, that's really what defines why I, it's... Yeah. Emotional claustrophobia. (laughs) So then that brings us to upper YA, which we've already kind of discussed as just being more 
more content wise, more emotionally, just more of everything, more darker themes, you know, hitting harder on that claiming your identity, um, thematic piece. Yeah. It's a little bit like the divide between early reader and chapter books. Yeah. You get you know to it when you YA see it versus kind of adult crossover, it starts to get very nebulous and mm. it has become incredibly porous in the past 10 years. Um, but I think we can save that for another day. Um, yeah. This is pretty much a very broad overview of children's fiction or children's publishing as we know it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can go into the more into specifics um, and it, as the series goes along, like the yeah. differences in voice, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Um, oh, and in terms of formatting too, middle grade and young adult generally release in hardcover and then go to paperback later. Yes. Yeah. Uh, just to keep up that, that format. Not, that was not always the case, but it, is it was not, but now it is the way that it is done. Yeah. No, 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 no. Way back when I was a kid, it was all paperbacks all the time. Nobody was going to spend money. And it, this is really what it is. The other thing that Twilight did was prove that, or, or, bring to light the realization that, um, teenagers are consumers, Mm -hmm. that a lot of teenagers have money (laughs) and are willing to spend it. And they spent it on Twilight. Now, yes, adult women really pushed that book as well. Um, but there was a dedicated teen audience for that book. And up until then, there was a big kind of a feeling that, children didn't have money you had to appeal to their parents and parents weren't going to buy hardback children also didn't value books as objects but as objects patently not the case with a lot of teen readers they do they love the physical object of a book Mm -hmm. yeah and so it used to be absolutely that you know children's fiction en masse was was printed in softcover um but now usually a hardcover first and then it goes to paperback there are exceptions some small presses don't do hardcovers they only do softback you know it all depends but generally speaking um you will see hardback initial release and then going to a softcover and then after YA we have new adult and i think new adult is a really interesting conversation and i think it's especially strange for us because we were kind of working in the industry when it happened or when it tried to happen, they tried, they tried yeah. to make fetch happen. Um, and fetch yeah, it did was not my happen. Boss. Yeah. So you were really directly working in it, um, in a hands-on way. And I was working in the industry and kind of witnessing it. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about what the plan for it was in the beginning, and we can go to what so, it happened to it and what they're trying to do with it now. New Adult runs into the problem of which which parent is going to get the custody of this of this child is essentially it. Is it children's fiction or is it adult fiction? That was really the problem. So my boss at the time really tried to make New Adult a thing. Because he essentially was the reason YA was a thing. He was the creator, uh, not the creator, he was the packager for Sweet Valley High, um, L.J. Smith's Vampire Diaries, a lot of these sort of 
mass market paperback YA teen books, like specifically teen books. Um, and he felt that there was a hole in the market for what he generally actual young adults, not teenagers, but like young adult people, um, people who are legally adults, but young, <laughs> uh, but that because the label young adult had already been taken, um, his idea was to call it new adult. Um, and so he was specifically looking for stories about, and at that point he was really targeting like 20 somethings, like younger 20 somethings. Um, it could include things like college narratives, but also stories that would come directly out of college, like just post-college, finding your first job in the world. Basically the first steps towards actual adulthood was Uh really what he was looking for fiction around that time. Now that's kind of a difficult category because adult at that point becomes incredibly very specific. You yeah. read romance, you read science fiction fantasy, you read mysteries and thrillers. Pretty much all fiction in adult gets shelved in specific areas of the shelf. Mm-hmm. And there is no dedicated bookstore shelving space for new adult. Yeah. Uh, my boss and I actually disagreed on whether or not we should expand YA or, quote, bring the lower, age, like the lower the age bar for adults. He thought we would lower the age bar for the adults. And I said, nope. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't raise think it the works. age bar for YA. He disagreed with me. Um, I think I was in the end proven correct. But <laughs> yes. Um, you know, when you're uh, 23 years old and this is your first job in publishing, they're not really going to listen to you. Um, no. But I said that because I was that reader. I was somebody who was in my early 20s and I never really, and I wasn't interested in adult books. Yeah. And I think the thing is too, is that those early 20s books were being written. It wasn't that they weren't being written because they were. There was The Devil Wears Prada, which Mm -hmm. was like your first job, your first, you know, like those books for 20-somethings were out there, but it was from a very different perspective and it was targeted toward very different audiences. And that's why I think your idea of raising the YA bar is really what we're talking about because we're talking about a point of view. We're talking about a specific category of people, readership that is viewing the world in a particular way. And it's also, I think the reason to, now that I think about it, the reason why I think that raising the age bar of, of upper YA made more sense is because the emotional immediacy of, of, YA one still exists in your early twenties, that kind of blinkers on sort of sensation. Oh, Oh, all the, Um, all the mistakes of my early twenties will attest to that. Yeah. I mean, so there's that aspect of it. And that is actually what I think makes YA incredibly compelling is that emotional immediacy. There is distance quite often in adult fiction. Um, and the example I actually think about is a 
a novel by Curtis Sittenfeld called Prep. Prep mm. takes place entirely in high school. Uh, it's an adult novel. And I think yeah. when you read it, you know it's an adult novel. It's Even though we are with this character in real time, there is a sense of perspective, distance, and a contextualizing of what is happening in the prose. That is what mm-hmm. differentiates. But you have books where there's incredible immediate emotional immediacy, but you're now dealing with adult themes, situations, and you start to approach things as an adult. Right. right. Well, it's like, um, I have not seen the whole film. I've seen part of it, so I'm a little bit speaking out of turn, but the film, um, the movie 13, which was made recently, um, is about a 13-year-old girl. Uh, I don't think that film is intended for 13-year-old viewers, though. I, I think it's, it's rated R, actually. Was yeah, it it's, R? yeah, it's intended. It's intended for adults, and it's about a thirteen-year-old girl, and it's about the experience of being thirteen, and it's really um, deeply, you know, tied to those experiences. But there is a contextualization and a perspective brought to that film that it is for adults about the experience of being thirteen. You would not that that's not for thirteen-year-olds to watch and see themselves in. At, at, at that moment. And I think it's similar. Yeah. Nowadays, we don't really call this adultish category new adult because over time, new adult basically just became associated with college romances. Yeah. That was not intentional. And I'm not being derogatory of these things. I'm saying that that seems to be the one segment of writing that took hold. Um, And so people then associated new adult with contemporary romance. And that's essentially what it means now. Yeah. yeah, And therefore it became absorbed by romance rather than being kind of an extension of the young adult category. Nowadays, those books that are published in YA that are definitely really on the adult side in terms of content, uh, thematic maturity and all that sort of stuff, we would probably call what adult crossover. Yeah. Uh, adult crossover has always existed. Um, and frankly, it was actually the other way around where there were a lot of, we'll say like science fiction fantasy novels that a lot of, and I was one of them where if I did if I did read adult books and not children's books, it was ten. It was mostly from the science fiction fantasy section. Um, so there, you know, there was always that kind of crossover, and I do think that there is a reason why most of these um, like adult crossover YA tend to be genre in that way. I think of Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo, The Gilded Wolves by Roshni is also, I would say, an adult crossover novel. So there's kind of uh, the Court of Thorns and Roses books. And mm. the Throne of Glass books by Sarah J. Mass, I would also consider adult crossover now. The earlier Throne of Glass books were still YA, but YA, um, yeah. as those books went on, cause it's a seven book series, one, the character entered her 20s and the things that she was dealing with were definitely more adult things. Um, so it was like Harry Potter if you started Harry Potter older, <laughs> I guess. It yeah. just kind of grew. Um, so... That's kind of what I would consider 
it's not really new adult because that label has just become so strongly associated with contemporary romance that the term mm-hmm. that we tend to use in children's publishing today is adult crossover. So, did we miss anything? Are we... No, I think in terms of our category overview, that is pretty pretty good. What would you say the adult crossover age range starts at? Because obviously there's no end for it. 17, 16, 16 16 and up. Yeah. I would, because I used to have these age category or age recommendations rather, you know, often if you look at the back of a book, they would say things like for ages seven and up, for ages eight and up, for ages 12 and up. And for the longest time, most YA was 14 and up and it was just 14 and up. But now they sort of started adding 16 and up. Um, which is kind of where I would say a lot of adult crossover sits. Um, because, I mean, I love Six of Crows and I love Lee. And those characters, in my mind, are not 17. In their they 20s, read, yeah. We've talked They don't about read like 17-year-olds. The only one who does to me is Wylan. Um, yeah. Everyone else is like, you know, you're all 21, 25. That's, that's totally normal. And then, like then Lee would mention that Kaz was like 17 and I would honestly feel like I'd been hit in the face with a brick. I'd just be like, what? No. (laughs) Um, And I mean this in that it really is, this is where it does get kind of gray because teen fiction is marketed towards younger readers. It doesn't mean that the actual characters have to be teenagers necessarily. Um, But also there is a maturity and a, a level difference between somebody who is 17 and somebody who is 21 and to me Kaz read someone like somebody who was 21 so um and again that's a lot of that's personal you know and it yeah. does depend on the individual there are certainly a lot of people who are much older than their years um which I was not I was always the opposite I was much younger <laughs> well even like the Red Rising series aren't they like, by the end of that series, they're in their 20s or whatever. But those are technically published adult. Are they really published adult? Ray. I thought... Yeah. Oh, yes, they are. Okay, um, I thought they were yeah. published YA, but I was wrong. They are... They There was a lot of cross-promotion to young mm-hmm. adult audiences. Uh, it's like Jay Kristoff's solo books are also published adult, but they do reach a younger Mm -hmm. audience because his other series is YA. So again, this part of that, it's easier now than it used to be. Yeah. And here is ultimately the challenge. I think even if we expand the categories, you will, until we have that first breakout, like twilight equivalent for adult crossover, um, that is intentionally adult crossover, you will always come up with hesitation because of the marketing piece. There will always be this question of how the sales to piece. market it and, and the sales piece. And where that, on the shelf does it go? Is it going to go? And that's really the, the question, because if you can't get it on the right shelf, you're not going to sell copies. And that that will be the thing that will hang you up. So you can have an amazing story that an agent loves, that an editor loves, that everybody loves. And if sales and marketing can't figure out where to put it, you're dead in the water because 
that is crucial. And so as we try to raise the age limit on YA, the marketing and sales piece is really going to be one of the most important pieces to figure out. And, you know, I don't know that we have a clear answer right now. It really seems to be case by cases based on the book, you know, and you know this intimately because they kind of did it with Winter Song. It was acquired as adult and then they were like, no, no, let's make it YA and let's change some things around, you know, because ultimately sales and marketing is going to say, here's where we think we'll be successful. Um, and in terms of what happened with Winter Song, that's also kind of unique because you were at a publisher that had a lot of um, fluidity between imprints. Like you had access to a children's imprint that they could move you under and mm -hmm. it would be okay. That's but not, not every place has that. No. So, you know, it, that was a really fortunate situation. And I think that marketing made the right decision and it was a good thing that winter song was moved. Um, and it does have a lot of, of crossover, but I think marketing it as YA because of the thematic content in it was probably the right way to go. But not every publisher is going to have that flexibility to let you hop imprints if you need to, or, you know, be able to make yeah. those calls. A lot of places are much more segregated and, you know, so you can't rely on that. We're like, Oh, if they acquire me as YA and they need to bump it up, they just can. No, not necessarily. Because it does come down to the sales force. The sales force, that's the dividing line between children's and adults, the sales force. Mm -hmm. Children's does anything from board books to YA in the children's markets. Mm -hmm. Adult does everything else. And by everything else, I mean genre now. So we get mystery thriller, romance, historical, science fiction, fantasy. It gets broken out that yeah. way rather than age-wise. All your connections are different. All your book buyers, all your publicity people, like contacts, everything is different in the world of children's versus adult. So it's not as simple as just being like, oh, I'll just flip through my contacts and contact these people instead. It's not like that. You cultivate your relationships within the markets that you're trying to reach. And so you can't just you know, flip a switch and do it. And when people go to Edboard, if you're, if you're told, you know, your book is going to Edboard and it doesn't actually get acquired, you don't get an offer. The editor comes back and says, Oh, I'm so sorry. It's a sales problem. It's mm -hmm. they took it to that meeting and they pitched their heart and soul into this book and sales and marketing looked at it and said, we can't sell it for whatever reason. They could be wrong, this doesn't mean that your book isn't saleable. It just means that they don't know how to sell it. That's what happens when you don't get through Edboard. Because if the editors love it, the editorial team loves it, they've gotten They're second They're going to fight as hard as They're they gonna can. They're going to fight for it. Yeah. And it, it's a sales problem. So if you get to Edboard and it gets shut down, that's what's happening. That is exactly what happened to Winter Song when I went to Edboard four times. Mm -hmm. before I got acquired and every single time the actual responses that came back were, we don't know what this is. Yeah. It's not romance. It's not really fantasy. It's too commercial to be literary and too literary to be straight up commercial. So what is this? Mm -hmm. And that was genuinely the problem you had on the adult side. 
um, when you move it to YA, you really don't have those problems anymore because YA covers absolutely every genre. The only difference is an age category. So there is no... The way things work, um, in children's particularly, you have... Most bookstores have a children's buyer. That's it. One person who acquires books for all the children's anywhere, again, from board books all the way up to YA. Um, and obviously, for example, like at an independent bookstore, maybe one person who does all of the books in their inventory. But for example, someone like Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble has a children's buyer, one person who decides what goes in for all of the children's, period. And then you get to adult and you have dedicated buyers for each of the categories and genres. So you have a women's fiction buyer, you have a, a, a romance buyer, you have a mystery thriller buyer, and these all go into the adult sections of the bookstore. This is what we mean by the sales forces being completely and utterly different. Because again, children's looks at age ranges, whereas adult looks at genre. Um, so, because you, in fiction is kind of the catch-all, to be completely honest, fiction is totally the catch-all, because if it doesn't really fit into any of the other genres, it's just fiction. <laughs> um, but, you know, so that's kind of the, the real difference in publishing, is that honestly, obviously there are thematic things and there are content things that are different, but that is really where the difference lies is mm -hmm. honestly, who's selling the book and who's buying the book. <laughs> yeah. Do we have anything else that we want to say? I don't think so. All right. So what are you working on? Um, earlier today I had a client turn in a manuscript. So I am reading and editing right now. What about you? Still Guardians? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I'm just at that point where I have ignored absolutely everyone that I know. Um, and just like my phone is on do not disturb pretty much all day. My mother yelled at me and was just like, why do you never talk to me? And I was like, because you're a lot to deal with emotionally. I love you. But you're a lot to handle emotionally, and I just don't have the spare bandwidth for that. Um, just in case your listeners thought that the tough love was only for you. No, no. The tough <laughs> love is for everyone. Um, my characters just take up a lot of emotional bandwidth. That's like the weird thing about being a writer, right? Because you're just, a lot of the time, you're just hanging out with imaginary people. But those imaginary people are just as draining as real people. And therefore, it doesn't leave any actual space to hang out with actual real people. Or at least that's the way it is for me. That's why you're all uh, hermits. Uh, uh, so, are you reading anything? I just finished um, On the Come Up by Angie Thomas. Ooh, I haven't gotten to that yet, but it's on my list. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I just love the way that she writes parents. <laughs> I loved Star's parents in um, The Hate You Give, and I love Bree's mom in On the Come Up. I just, her parents are so great. I don't know. I just love them. Uh, it's really, really great. It's, you know, I, I think it is probably, 
I can't even imagine the pressure to follow up after having a debut as successful as The Hate mm. You Give. Um, and On the Come Up is a very different book, but I genuinely really enjoyed it. I read it all in one sitting. Um, I thought it was great. I haven't read anything new because I've been trying to buckle down on this uh, revision. So I'm just looking through. I did start The Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. Um, which is her new, she's the author of The Bone Season. Uh, and oh, all yes. Books. Yeah, I got sent the arc a while ago, and I just hadn't had time to read it. And I was like, oh, I'm going to read this. It's a brick. I swear to God, this book weighs like five pounds. Um, but I started reading it, but I had to kind of table that because I'm really just trying to focus on getting this revision done. So not a ton of reading. Um... Any off-menu recommendations? Any off-menu recommendations? I don't think so. I already raved about Russian Doll. Which I have seen now. Oh, it's so good. It's really good, you guys. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, I love it. Um, yeah, I think that's all I've got going on. Uh, aside from Russian Doll, I did watch Dragon Prince. Oh, yes. Season, mm-hmm. I did too. Which Kelly and I have talked about. We've texted <laughs> each other about. The honest truth is, like, I really liked the show. I think the second season is better than the first season, which I thought was pretty decent, if flawed. The second season, also flawed, but mm-hmm. I'm so on board with all of the characters now that I, I'm willing to kind of overlook... And I do think the storytelling did get tighter in the second season of The Dragon Prince, but we have the fundamental problem still of I don't know what the villain's motivation is. Right. And the problem is, I think, that the show seems to think that the villain's motivation is really clear because Mm -hmm. he is not presented as this person who's, like, vacillating between like right and wrong. Like he's not presented as somebody that you're supposed to be unsure about where you're supposed to question, like, is he good or is he bad? Like it's, it's the show is treating it as if here he is and you're supposed to get it. And it is not clear. And I've heard a couple of theories and arguments for, you know, what it is that that's motivating the antagonist. And I don't buy any of them. Um, so it's a real problem. Yeah, I honestly, like, I just, I I watched the show and I was like, maybe this season they will elucidate what Viren's motivation is for why he does the things he does. Because it isn't power. It's not really prejudice. It's not no. even really good intentions perverted. No, like it's like there's little elements of all three of all those three things, of them, but, n- but it's not clearly any one of those. No, no. But uh, there are some amazing supporting characters in this show. Um, there's some amazing just that just things in general about it are great. Um, and I do think that the animation was more seamless this time around. Mm-hmm, there's. Um, a lot of um, computer-generated animation as well as, I think, hand-drawn and 
um, the CGI stuff in the first half of like series one or whatever was really weird. Like it was it, very clunky. It was, it was like obviously yeah. CGI in a way that the second season doesn't have that problem. Yeah, it's much it's much more seamless uh, in the animation style, and I genuinely love a lot of the characters. The voice acting is super great, um, so I do recommend it. It's just. I don't recommend it as like bright like this. <laughs> and they always and they all end at the worst. Like every season has ended Ugh. at the worst spot. It's not even a cliffhanger. It's just it just ends. Yeah, I literally was texting JJ as I was watching the show, and I was like, "Oh, I've got a couple more episodes left." And then I sent her an all caps text, and I was like, "Wait, I think I just finished. What the f-? like? Oh, not." F- hmm. <laughs> I will edit this out. (laughs) Bleepity bleep. What the heck? Uh, Because it just ends. And I was like, I think I have another episode. Wait, no, I don't. What? So, yeah. Yeah, we can talk about the art of a cliffhanger at a later date. But Mm. it ain't it in The Dragon Prince. Because that ain't a cliffhanger. That's just a WTF ending. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um. Is there anything else I've been watching or anything? No, I think it's pretty much just those. I really did love Russian Doll. I want to wear everything Natasha Leone is wearing in that show. Uh, So I literally went out and tried to find Mm -hmm. as much of her wardrobe as I possibly could. Um, It's so good. It's so great. And I loved, you know, I loved watching a show about a woman that was written by women and you can tell that it was written by women because she just felt like a person that I know in real life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like she felt like an actual woman dealing with actual life stuff. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I'm tired and we're not explicit here at pub girl. Sadly, no. Uh, no. I am very profane in real life. Our other um, podcast we let loose, but it's true. And now that we're recording friendly. that one again, yeah. Now that we're recording that one again, hint, hint. Um, yes. So yeah, I will try to rein it in, keep it family friendly, uh, <laughs> save JJ the editing until we're able to hire our editor for us, and then it will be their problem. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, recommendations, I think, other than Russian Doll and Dragon Prince, that's kind of all that's been going on with me. All right. That is all for this week. Next time, we'll be continuing our deep dive into children's publishing with a closer look at middle grade and young adult, focusing particularly on voice and um, other hallmarks of those two genres, categories, whatever. As always... If you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like this, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also visit us on Patreon at Publishing Crawl and join our lovely patrons in supporting the upkeep of this podcast. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram or on my website, penandparsley.com. 
And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter and Instagram, or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Contagion, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or use the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Patrons also have access to a suggestion box where they can volunteer topics they would like us to discuss in future episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Thank you.